Hello, welcome to Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast. I'm Sharon Friel, Professor of Health Equity at the Australian National University. The Dinner Ladies is a group of female professors at the Australian National University. And over the past year or so, we've gotten together every month over dinner, yes, over real dinner when we could, where we spoke about our lives, our research, our politics, uh, not always our politics, but you know, politics, uh, our cats, our dogs, a whole load of things. Uh, but really, most importantly, we supported each other with the challenging everyday stuff uh, of university life uh, as a, a senior female academic. And I thought we could all do with a little bit of support in these very, very strange times. And given the dinner ladies' expertise across many issues, we thought it might be useful to get together to discuss some of the very real challenges that we're all facing at the moment in light of COVID-19. But rather dwell, well, rather than dwell on the problem, we've been trying to highlight some of the ways forward, some of the positive things. Over a virtual dinner, uh, our past eight episodes have been anchored around COVID-19, but covered a much broader sweep of issues that are interconnected and affecting humanity as we know it. Healthcare, inequality, social cohesion, the tragedy of politics, questions of security, ethics, civil liberties, communications and climate change. Yes, they're all connected to COVID. So tonight's recording is a little different and I'll tell you more about that in a second. But just before we begin, it's the 19th of May, 2020. There are more than 4.8 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide, staggering. And very sadly, there are more than 320,000 deaths. In Australia, where we're recording the podcast, we have 7,068 cases and 100 deaths. So this is the final episode in series one of the podcast and all of the dinner ladies are here. We're all online having virtual dinner together. So it could be absolute carnage, but let's see how we go. Um, so just to remind you who we are. So we're all professors from the Australian National University. We have Imogen Mitchell, who's director of the medical school and on secondment uh, as clinical director of the COVID-19 response in the Australian Capital Territory. Lyndall Strasden, director of the Research School of Population Health. Helen Sullivan, director of the Crawford School of Public Policy. Tony Erston, director of the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs. Sally Wheeler, dean of the College of Law. Leslie Seebeck, Chief Executive Officer of the Cyber Institute, Joan Leach, Director of the National Centre for Public Awareness of Science, Shirley Leach, who's the former Dean of Business and Economics and Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Global Engagement. And I'm from the Menzies Centre in the School of Regulation and Global Governance. So we've been in lockdown for two months now. The health, the economic, the social, and emotional disruption has been absolutely incredible. I've certainly never experienced anything like it in my life. Complexity theorists suggest that creativity happens at the edge of chaos. And I'm wondering, might there be some positive creativity arising from this mess we find ourselves in? So ladies, you are all super smart women, although you wouldn't believe it given the trouble we had just trying to get set up, but fortunately, listeners you didn't hear or see any of that. Um, our mission this evening 
if you choose to accept, is to identify the most interesting insight that has come out of this period of our lives. And importantly, how will this save the world? So we've all been stuck in lockdown. I'm going to go through the screen of all these fabulous women that I have the opportunity to work with and become friends with. And I'm going to start uh, up in my top left-hand corner, which is Shirley, uh, Shirley Leach. Shirley, what do you think? What's been this incredible insight that you've had? Well, the first thing that, that struck me about the virus was how it uh, really demonstrated confirmation bias in action. So we had this very strange, very disruptive uh, phenomenon of COVID-19. It, it, it closed our economies down overnight. It sent us all um, in fear into our homes. We were frightened of strangers. We were frightened of loved ones. There was no hugging. Um, and how we understood and made sense of that really came down to what we actually thought prior to um, the arrival of COVID-19. Now, if you go down that path too far, you'd think, well, there's no possibility of change. You know, what we think is what we're always going to think. But it is interesting that the one thing that can really um, um, kick over the traces of confirmation bias is, is, is very sort of cataclysmic events like a pandemic. And we are really starting to see the impact of COVID-19 on both interests and identities, on people's economic well-being, as well as how they see themselves and their friends and their families. So people who've never been unemployed are finding themselves in unemployment queues. Um, people who've always been, you know, able to rely on, you know, support of big social networks are suddenly finding themselves isolated and alone. We're seeing massive changes. Um, and so when people say we're going to snap back to the past as it was, I think that's delusional. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I remain hopeful that some very positive changes are going to come out of this. Fantastic. So, Lyndall, does that, does that sort of connect with the sort of insights that you've had from, from this time? Well, yeah, actually, it's really interesting you say that, Shirley, because what I was sort of thinking of, and I don't know if I'm cheating here, but um, sort of my insights were really about what's possible, but also at the same time, what's invisible. And, and, and how, what this has shown for me is how connected they are. So one of the things that was possible was that we could completely um, suborn our economy in the name of health. And that was an extraordinary, I think, um, topsy-turvy uh, event given we've had, uh, well, I mean, a couple of hundred years, but certainly the last 30 years of economy is supreme. And so that was overturned quite quickly. And that was an extraordinarily, um, uh, and, and, and suddenly people were given money um, who had lost jobs. So suddenly the poor were not seen as, um, the undeserving poor. Suddenly the poor were seen as um, actually uh, a problem of circumstance. And I've not heard that spelled out on a the political stage in this country in that way ever. So that was, an to me, that was opening the door to thinking very differently. And I think that's exciting. On the other hand, 
there was a whole lot of things that were rendered invisible. And that's kind of back to your point, Shirley, that there was a whole lot of, if you like, understandings and assumptions about how the world was that started to actually create a singular voice. And I saw that particularly in our assumptions about, you know, what really matters. So suddenly we, we, we had suborned the economy to health, but we had forgotten women. So there was this interesting invisibility, even while we disrupted a dominant discourse, other ones locked in and created another in kind of, if you like, fracturing of, of who was going to be okay and not okay. And that's played out in terms of the violence, the mental health, um, the extraordinary tripling of women's workloads in the home, um, the invisibilizing of that, uh, the assumption that you can work and teach kids and clean the house um, and, and, and carry on. Um, so, so this was, to me, there was this interesting nexus between um, the impossible becoming possible, but the invisible still sticking in how we've approached it. And I feel there's a potential to, to arm ourselves with the memory of what was said, that people are actually subject to circumstance. They're not unemployed because it's their fault. And we can call um, the, our country back to account. But at the same time, we also, I think, are forewarned that those invisibilities have to be um, challenged and questioned. And they went, they went right through from our own workplaces right out. Okay. Linda, and so I think that might connect, that really lovely, um, maybe connect into what Sally uh, was thinking of as, as well. So Sally, I'll, I'll come to you. So I think that a very uh, Australian response, because I think if you look at other parts of the world, then what we see are huge inequalities, huge inequalities in survival rates and illness rates, huge inequalities in uh, housing uh, and in who can access public space and who needs to access public space and, and who doesn't. If you look at a lot of the European states, you see there that people are living in really crowded conditions and actually nobody really cares. There is now some sort of acknowledgement of, uh, of that, but, but, but really only on a, yes, this is terrible level, you know, so the, the, but no, no inclination to do anything about it. The warehousing of the not very well off and the very sick in care homes where we see that this virus has just ripped through there, but apparently these people are expendable. And I might add on that on a personal note, what surprised me most is actually how little there is to watch on Netflix. <laughs> I call out to everybody who has uh, anything to show on YouTube or, you know, direct it to Sally Wheeler. Um, she's looking for something interesting to watch. So I think, I mean, I, I think that's really nice. Just, you know, and, and that fills me a bit with hope, actually, in terms of if it can be done in a place like Australia, you know, if it can be done in the way that Lyndall uh, has pointed to, um, then that means it can be done somewhere else. Uh, and the fact that it's not in the way that you're describing, Sally, is just shocking, you know, that, and those are choices. So, Helen, this is something that we, we were sort of speaking about some of this in the 
podcast uh, back when we were speaking about politics. So just you know, maybe just sort of picking up on some of the comments that have been made so far, and then of course also your own personal insight into this. Yeah, um, well, there's a very good film, Pain and Glory, Sally, that uh, is worth watching, but it's not on Netflix. So I'm sorry, that's not that helpful. Um, so in terms of, I completely agree with everything that's been said. And I, I think I, I sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm really torn and, and I think this reflects, you know, some of the dissonance between some of the contributions so far for me. Um, one of the really striking things, um, again, evident in Australia, but not just in Australia, uh, has been the way in which we've rediscovered the public sector. We've rediscovered the value of, you know, the state um, and the importance of state capacity. And that, I think, has come as a surprise to many people. Um, and it's something that, uh, again, I think in, in Australia, we have seen, you know, just a remarkable uh, response from the public service and the public sector. And a, a preparedness to be creative and to innovative and innovative and to respond and to do things differently, which, I mean, it's not perfect by any means, um, but certainly a, a level of awareness that um, if not for them, then who? Um, so the, the importance of us having that kind of capacity, I think, has been reinforced. My worry about that is that, you know, in a way that Shirley was talking about the snapback, there is this idea that somehow we will return to this thing called business as usual, which, you know, even we in our organization, you know, people talk about BAU as if somehow we are ever going to return to business as usual. And, and that alarms me, I think, because it it implies uh, either a fear, which is understandable, or a complacency about how we might shape the future. Um, and there, I think there are, there are two things that to me are, are really striking and very different. One is just the terrifying way in which some of our world leaders are behaving and continue to behave, um, and the way in which they're exacerbating tensions within their countries, between countries, between regions, um, in ways that I think are incredibly dangerous and irresponsible, and I've written about them being reckless. But on the other hand, I think what we're also potentially seeing is some people thinking about the what's next question in a really interesting way. And here, and I have no expertise in this, but here, what, what I think is, really important is the contribution that arts and humanities can make to how we reshape whatever the future looks like because we've done it the way that economics uh, would like us to do it um, that hasn't turned out all that well for lots and lots of people um, surely as Shirley says this is an opportunity this kind of cataclysmic event is an opportunity for us to look to people who can create uh, can think about new and interesting ways of, of viewing the world can help us people like me who are public policy people who are so you know institutionalized into accepted ways of thinking that maybe we find it a bit harder to think very differently so i would really like us to explore the possibilities in the arts and the humanities for for how we might 
develop a, a more sustainable future, providing that the reckless leaders don't lead us to ruin beforehand. Thanks, Helen. Um, and so before, because I, I know some of the others uh, will probably pick up on the, the arts and humanities, I'm going to jump over to, to Leslie, um, who's not an arts and humanities person, but yeah. you think about security and tech and all of that from that social uh, perspective. So I don't know, Leslie, if that's the way you were thinking about it in terms of the, <laughs> the insights, but I'll put you on the spot to reflect a little bit on what uh, Helen and, and colleagues have been saying, but then also, of course, the space for your own mm. insights. Great. Thank you very much, Sharon. Uh, Sally, I can recommend The Witcher, but then I play the game as well. Um, still on Netflix, so that's good. If you like medievals of uh, dragons and monsters and so on, that's all great. Just on a personal note, the thing that, <laughs> apparently not, the thing that um, uh, I found hardest in this whole exercise recently is just working from home. It's been hard work. I mean, sitting there in front of a screen all day is hard. It's hard trying to keep a team together is hard, uh, and so that also plays into sort of you know one of the things I'm seeing. Uh, everyone's sort of spoken about how this is exactly you know, this past two months is exacerbating a number of trends. You know, it's just making all these things we could see faster. I'd argue it's going to be big, bigger than that. I think it's going to be more of a disruption. And I'll give you three examples. So one is the use of technology and the domination of the technology platforms that we're seeing. So we couldn't operate like this were it not for the platforms. And no one's really given thought to what this means in terms of uh, the domination and political power that's accruing to things such as Amazon's, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, and how that's playing into our space. Um, and it's particularly the case for a, a country like Australia. We just don't have a technological base. We're takers, we're not shapers, we're not makers. And we really need to think hard about that, which is interesting given the rhetoric that's been around recently around things like economic sovereignty. The other thing about technology too, it's distancing. And we're not asking the questions about who's, got, who's looking after the data and all those sort of things that, again, we've asked in the past and in the rush of trying to deal with COVID, we've forgotten about. The second thing is it's, we're seeing the end of US, formal US leadership in the West. And that's been a big shift. I think we're seeing there's still a degree of informal leadership. We still look there and say what's happening. And it's, what, it's fascinating watching some of the states step, uh, in the US step up at the moment. And this goes back to a point Helen made in an earlier podcast about the different dimensions of state failure. I mean, you can see how some of these things are, you know, it's different states. It's, it's one of the things I have to admit I've always loved about the US is that you get to see that variation at different levels. Some work well, some work better. It's a, it's a constant experiment across the nation. But we are seeing different dimensions of state failure. And this also plays into the argument about we're seeing the res resurrection of the public sector. Uh, my response is be careful what you wish for. And I say that because you still need to see we're seeing erosion of the government's mechanisms around the state at the moment. So parliamentary democracy is essentially being suspended. So we need those checks and balances for this to work, and they've been forgotten. We're seeing the rise of expertise, which is good, but go back to a point that Jones made in the past about, again, the sciences need to be careful what they wish for in this space as well. It's often the sort of the, um, these, aren't, these aren't scientific questions, they're political questions. They should not be mistaken for scientific questions with some nice, neat scientific answers, in part because we know that science tends to want to make sure it's absolutely right, 
politics is contingent and contextual, and that's essentially what we need to get better at. The second, the last thing I would raise as being a disruption is uh, it's not so much economics. It's the end of the, you know, the efficiency paradigm in economics that I think we're witnessing. So if you ever work inside government, everything's about efficiency, making sure you've got more efficient things. And that's, that's, that's contributed to the lack of resilience in the nation state and the state failure. You're not allowed to have the redundancy you would actually often you know, have in when you actually sit down and do budgets because that's expensive. And certainly there's an argument about opportun you know, uh, opportunity costs, but the, the level of discussion is usually not that deep. It's how can we make this more efficient? How can we cut uh, in response to the efficiency dividend, for example, in the public sector? Um, having said that, so those are the three sort of sets of disruptions. Um, uh, I don't think these are boding well for Australia unless we actually step up and actually think hard about these questions. So I like to think I'm an optimist in this space, but it means that we actually have to step up in terms of things like understanding what technology actually is, having a more mature understanding of that and what we need to do for if we want to have sovereignty, what that actually means. Having better understanding what a digital democracy means and having the governance arrangements around democracy. I think this is a time where we need to double down on de our democratic instincts rather than stepping back from them. Well, Leslie, you've provoked us. Um, and so before I hand over to Tony, I mean, wouldn't it be lovely? So you've said the end of the efficiency paradigm. paradigm. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't it be lovely if our new paradigm was one about equity, social equity, and also perhaps effectiveness, wouldn't that be nice? Anyway, Tony, you're going to tell us how we do all of that. Sure. Okay, I will, Sharon. I'll pick up on your social equity challenge. I think for me, there have been a number of observations and concerns that have come out of this period of COVID-19 that relate to the work that I do on the idea of cosmopolitanism. So that does go back to that social equity. Now, just I know I'm kind of coming from outside other people's areas. So I want to say something about what I mean by cosmopolitanism. It can mean two different things. It can refer to the aspiration to a world government and the political institutions that would presumably accompany it, or it can refer to the idea that our moral commitments, our duties, our moral responsibilities to others necessarily extend beyond political borders, as well as ethnic, ideological, socioeconomic, and religious divides. Now, the first variation can be called political cosmopolitanism and the second ethical cosmopolitanism. And the focus of my work has been on the latter, on ethical cosmopolitanism, although I think that COVID-19 poses questions for both. Now, a catchphrase of ethical cosmopolitanism was first uttered in the, 14th, in the 4th century BC by Diogenes the Cynic, I'm a citizen of the world. So how does the ethical cosmopolitan ideal fare in our current COVID-19 world. And I'm struck by three observations that I think do go back to other things that people have said. The first is the basic universality of our current crisis. We're experiencing a situation that has all the hallmarks of fostering the sort of global solidarity that a robust ethical cosmopolitanism would arguably require. We're facing a common threat, one that's genuinely global in scope, one that doesn't discriminate between political allegiances or ideologies or religions. We all meet a basic threshold of vulnerability. No one is immune, both literally and metaphorically. Even in this time of self-isolation with imposed social distancing and closed borders and some spectacular scapegoating, 
by certain politicians. This has all the potential to be a unifying moment, what might be called a coronavirus cosmopolitanism. But my second observation is a counterpoint to this seeming universality. Even if there has the potential to be a unifying moment due to a shared threat, it's clear that structural inequalities within and between societies mean that people are subject to hierarchies of harm in the way that they're affected by COVID-19 and by the responses to it. And this is something that's come up as well. And here the COVID-19 reality seems to reveal the principle of equal moral standing at the heart of ethical cosmopolitanism, one of the things I study, to be little more than wishful thinking. John Rawls' famous thought experiment from the 1970s, his original position, whereby one is asked to choose principles of social justice behind a veil of ignorance, where one knows nothing about one's circumstances, has been adopted by cosmopolitan scholars and applied to the global level. And in this variation, we're asked what global principles of justice we would defend if we understood the international system, but were oblivious to our place within it. And I've been thinking about what global principles each of us would choose if we knew everything about our shared vulnerability to COVID-19 and nothing about where we were situated geographically or socioeconomically, what our citizenship or life chances were, for example. And that brings me to my third and final point, which is a question. What does it actually mean to be a citizen of the world during COVID-19? And what should it mean? And maybe this brings us back to political cosmopolitanism. I'm not an advocate of a world state as such, but considering a hypothetical global original position in a COVID-19 world, not to mention a world faced with climate chaos, seems to highlight a few things. It highlights the urgency of challenging global norms during this new normal, of questioning what type of leaders we need, of emphasizing the importance of international cooperation, of strengthening and improving, not withdrawing from intergovernmental organizations, and somehow thinking about this universal moment as one that presents an opportunity for radical change. Well, a lovely rallying call to, well, change the world order. I love it, Tony. Um, and I, I, I just think we see the possibilities of, of all of that. So, Joan, you're going to tell us also how we achieve that aspiration, aren't you? Um, but but your, your insight, your particular insight from, uh, from all of this situation. So I could have listened to Tony talk a lot longer because one of the things that I've done during this COVID-19 lockdown is a kind of a, a retro reading project. I have gone back to something, it, it's sort of nagging at me that I read, and now I realize over 30 years ago, um, when I was um, in graduate school by Nancy Fraser about cosmopolitanism and about publics because one of the things, I mean, I work on science and how science intersects politics and all I see are at the moment very interesting bubbling up of all kinds of weird opinions. So 5G, for example, is spreading coronavirus. Uh, that's, some, that's an opinion that's out there. Um, there are various views about how soon we'll get a, or, or if it's even possible that we'll get a, get a vaccine. People disagree. So why is it that, you know, we have, we have all this going on and how does that relate to co cosmopolitanism? Well, I mean, I actually think there's a sense in which um, science can uh, allow us to imagine um, a world where, you know, you, you, could, you could kind of um, balance those opinions. 
Um, but what, what Nancy Fraser was telling us 30 years ago is that that's not how it's going to work. That's not how it's going to work. Science isn't going to come in and save the day. And so actually what's going to save the day is a kind of a, a jostling between publics. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. The, the question then, I mean, for my retro reading project, is um, whether there are going to be strong publics or weak publics. And right now we have pretty weak publics. They're generating a lot of opinions, a lot of heat, not a lot of light. <laughs> and they're not hooking up to kind of our, um, our regulatory and our government processes, our legislative processes. And so um, that's been really interesting to, for me to think upon. And boy, Tony, if we could have a glass of wine together in person, I, I think it'd be great to talk about that more. But, but it is something that um, but I've, I've been thinking a lot about. I guess, I guess the other thing I would think, I want to pick up this notion about, um, you know, the arts and humanities. I was, I was thinking about the history of science, because that's a, a discipline that, um, that I've studied. And um, thinking back to other um, terrible epidemics. And one of them, thinking back to smallpox and how we had such a success, the, eradic the eradication of smallpox. And you look around the world and the eradication of smallpox was a lot about the way in which um, vaccination could be integrated into the cultural practices of the countries and, 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 and the smaller even clans um, in which vaccination was introduced. Okay, and so when we, last week at the, in the New York Times, I read an article saying, we don't have a vaccine yet, but half of Americans won't take it because um, they're worried about, you know, uh, you know, dangers of vaccination. So I think we're gonna have to do a lot more thinking about the cultural integration of um, potential futures of vaccination um, in specific, but all kinds of other things, which, which brings me to, I guess, the third point I'd make from looking at how the science is functioning at the moment. I'm absolutely flabbergasted at how people are now kind of saying, oh, well, it's kind of all right if we get this vaccine up and going in, um, you know, three months. We'll, we'll cut some corners, okay? We won't do animal studies. That'll be all right. And um, we'll just kind of roll this out as fast as we can. And we're willing to take some risks. I think, oh, are we? Nobody asked me about this. Um, so, so this is really very tense kind of thing around what's good enough um, in science at the moment. Now, now, I mean, the thing is, we've been sold on things like personalized medicine. Okay, so, you know, people have tried to sell me on the idea, okay, if I get cancer, it's okay. They're going to be able to sort me out because they'll be able to have a look at my um, genetic um, code and they'll be able to say, oh gosh, that's where it all went wrong and we'll fix it up for you. Um, and you're telling me we've gone from, you're selling me on personalized medicine to the point that we might not have a vaccine. Now, wait a minute, I feel a bit ripped off. And so I think there's a, a kind of a real tension at the moment around, um, around these ideas about what science can actually deliver and what's going to be good enough and what we, will, um, what we will accept, what we will stand for. And so if I can take those two ideas about how publics are getting a little bit, um, you know, maybe they're getting a little bit uneasy um, and this notion of good enough science, I think we're going to see these conflicts um, increase and not decrease. And so we're going to have to get a lot better at integrating the way in which we do science and politics. Um, and that means all kinds of interesting things. Um, so in a sense, it's exciting. It's a possibility. I think it's also possible that portions of the scientific community could do that. 
but that's going to take some work. And that's what's been exercising me lately. Great. Thanks, Joan. And, and uh, so I'm coming to Imogen now because Imogen, I mean, you've been sort of on the front line of all of this, as it were. And, and I think you've probably experienced both of, um, uh, directly and indirectly a number of the things that everybody's just been speaking about. And I, I think particularly the, the sort of the point that Joan was making around science. Um, but so tell us, Imogen, you must, uh, you must have lots of thoughts on what this very strange period has yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking that you're all very erudite speakers and I'm just a frontline worker. <laughs> so, um, I guess it's, it was a fascinating experience uh, coming into a precipice that was looking very dreadful. And you're just waiting to see if government will respond to the uh, voices of public health doctors and infectious disease doctors or were they going to respond, no, the economy, we need to keep it going. So it was a waiting game to see what happened. And I guess in the end, if it goes back to Lindell, it was the, um, you know, in the end it came down to health and the, the economy would be artificially supported in some respects. I think what will be fascinating, two things. One is, um, should there be a second wave? What will be, then be the next decision? Certainly when I was talking to you know, the public health doctors, it was very clear that the premiers and the prime minister were absolutely determined that uh, death was out of the question and that we were going to save life. Um, I'd be interested to know if there was a second wave, what would happen? Um, and so it goes back to Joan's comment about science. I mean, certainly in Australia, we haven't actually had enough cases to even think whether science is going to have any impact on the cases. Whereas, in fact, public health has come to the fore. And uh, it, what's been interesting at the medical school is that public health and population health were always um, uh, courses that were not well attended. And now, of course, it's become extremely exciting and maybe students might pay attention. But it probably goes back even, even more broadly that public health uh, does need to be taken more seriously. Um, preventative uh, medicine is probably more effective than actually you know, looking after intensive care patients. I mean, intensive care is incredibly expensive and uh, you do wonder whether you're getting uh, your bang for your buck. So I guess for me, it was just watching to see what government does, that they did decide in the end that health was going to be uh, more prominent. It'll be interesting to see what happens next. But as I was picked up uh, earlier, is that, you know, all these crises do tend to create uh, innovations and certainly in the health sector, you, know, you saw immediately that telehealth took off. Now, again, I think um, uh, what Leslie was picking up, I don't feel it's been evaluated and whether people are really getting a good experience, but it's something that needs to be uh, evaluated effectively, as indeed, of course, so should um, online learning. I mean, I think we've thrown our teachers and our students uh, to, to immediately pick up on digital um, enhanced learning and I can only say that you know, having a 12 year old that's been quite a challenge at home and um, <clears throat> trying to keep her focused. So I think there are certainly innovations that have come out of this. Uh, I do think it will be interesting to see what happens next should we ever have a second wave. I, I think it's been devastating watching colleagues in the UK and New York uh, manage the healthcare 
I think that's really been devastating just to see how many healthcare workers have actually been impacted to the point that they've died. And purely as a result of really lack of equipment, uh, I think that's been a very devastating experience. But we're very uh, thankful in Australia that we haven't yet gone down that pathway. Brilliant. Thanks, Imogen. Um, so I, 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 I won't repeat what sort of various colleagues have, have said, but it struck three things kind of struck me when I was thinking about what is coming on to this, uh, this episode. The first is the sort of the fear of the unknown uh, seems to be such a strong human trait. You know, if you think of what could be, we've got such a, a policy window right now with all of this disruption that is taking place. And we could do it so differently and better in the way that you know, everybody's been, various people have been speaking about. But it's just, it's as if, it's like, just as if it's, we're fearful of wanting to do it differently. And I know there's a whole lot of vested interests that get involved in all of that, but it just seems to be such a strong trait that's coming through in this return to something that we're just more comfortable with. And, you know, going back to some of the remarks that I made at the beginning about this kind of, you know, creativity at the edge of chaos and, that's fine if you're comfortable with being there at those sort of edges of chaos, but many people retreat to the, the middle ground and I just worry that that's, that's what's happening. Um, I think what COVID has done is absolutely shine a light on the fragility of our systems, whether that's the, the healthcare systems, um, whether it's the just-in-time supply chain, it's just, just the fragility. And sometimes that's okay. Uh, you know, we, we, we can live um, on a, a nice edge sometimes, but um, when it, we get pushed over uh, in the way that we have done with COVID, then all of the problems that we've seen as a consequence and that we've been speaking about become really quite phenomenal. And then the third point that really, um, this came from, uh, I got some feedback on the, the podcast, uh, on the Dinner Lady Save the World podcast from uh, a wonderful colleague uh, who I know very well, so I, of course there's no bias in here at all, um, uh, but Professor Anne McFarlane, she's Professor of Primary Care over at the University of Limerick in Ireland, and Anne was reflecting that one of the things that she really appreciates about the discussions within the podcast is the measured thinking that we've been bringing to all of the discussions. So it's not that we've been, and it sort of goes to some of the points that you were saying, uh, Joan, around some of the, the science, but you know, we've, we've been speaking and reflecting in a, in a slow way, in a thoughtful way, and thinking about how it can have positive and negative impacts. And it's, you know, some might say it's plain, um, and you know, Anne was saying to me, but it's great. It's you know, it's the reality of how systems change and how you know it's the the big fast shiny bullet uh, which just doesn't exist and can't exist for the sorts of issues that we're speaking about. But of course, that's what gets the headlines. And and so she, it was just finding this the importance of measured, slow thinking and deliberation. Um, and I think that really is testament to to all of you, uh, the dinner ladies. And then just the, 
final point that I would make is the importance of humour. That's been my sort of personal insight, whilst I've been going completely uh, round the bend and uh, sitting in the house. Um, is just how humour, and we see that coming out in so many different ways, don't we? Um, and I, I'm going to do a shout out for something that just makes me laugh out loud every time I watch it, which is Jamie Godley's voiceover for Nicola Sturgeon. So she does uh, a daily, um, uh, sorry, a briefing, and Jamie Godley, who's a, a Scottish comedian, uh, does this voiceover. If you want to learn how to speak Glaswegian, if you don't mind very, very coarse language, uh, I highly recommend it. It has kept me uh, just from climbing the walls uh, in this time of COVID lockdown. So, yeah, there were some of my thoughts. So we've, we've got about sort of five minutes or, or so left. There's been, well, I hope for listeners, um, many of the, the insights that colleagues have highlighted uh, over our, our virtual dinner. Uh, I, I hope they reflect some of the things that you've been uh, feeling or experiencing or seeing uh, over the, the past weeks and, and months. But just to, to open up, as if pretend we're having uh, a real dinner, we're sitting together, we're sitting across the table, we're all talking over each other, you know, the way that we normally do. Um, any any final thoughts before I, I wrap it up? Tony. Yeah, Sharon, I liked all of your points, um, but your first point about the fear of the unknown. And I think that fear of the unknown is actually important and potentially productive because it's a shared fear. I guess that goes back to my universal moment point. And the fact that it's a shared fear matters. So if we can get past our sort of trying to go within our own individual fortresses, then this universality of experience, I think, can be really productive. And that goes back to your point about the possibility, I think you said, of creativity out of chaos. And I, so I think there's, there is hope there. Great. Great. Helen, Helen and then Lyndall. Thanks, Sharon. Um, yeah, I think I've been kind of really struck by um, Leslie's uh, prescription, which I, I recognize, not prescription, diagnosis, which I, I recognize. And, but I think this is a moment where, of course, all of those things could happen. Um, and, you know, we could, we could see an exacerbation of the dominance of, you know, particular corporations and particular kinds of extraordinarily totalitarian style governments and fear and anxiety and, and exacerbated inequality. We, of course, we could see all of that. But I think one of the things that is really important and has come out of all of the, the podcasts is the fact that we do all have agency, whether or not you know, we, we certainly don't have equal agency, but we do all have agency. And, you know, one of the things that, that is possible is for us to decide that the diagnosis and the, the likely prescription that follows from that, that, that Leslie's talking about, um, is not one that we want. And um, that we do want an alternative. And I absolutely agree um, with Joan that, you know, the the future then has to be political and that requires us to become political animals in a way that many of us probably are reluctant to because you know we find the world of, of politics 
um, alienating and, and occasionally distasteful. But it does seem to me that if we want to make a difference and we want to protect democracy or um, do democracy in a, in a, in a better and, and more inclusive way, then, then we have to get involved. And that, I think, is something that, um, you know, the, the different expertise that the dinner ladies have brought to the conversations has given me hope that absolutely we can do things differently. Yes, here, 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 here. Lyndall, and then we'll come down to you, Leslie. Well, the first thing to say is that it was like um, part of me resonated with every single person. It was like the truth that came through in different ways from every single person here. That was a really moving and powerful thing. So I wanted to thank you all for that, just to go, oh, yes, oh, yes, all the way through. But the, the kind of two bits that really struck me um, uh, the first thing was Tony's comment, sorry, Leslie's comment about how hard it is to work at home. And it feels like this is a moment, to, it's kind of like we've suddenly fast-tracked into a dystopian future where we all um, are mediated by technology and we have no real social bonds um, that are, are, are visceral and tangible. And it's, it, to me, it's a wake-up call that I don't want that. I don't, and I don't want that for anyone else either. And how valuable the human and the intimate and the connection is and the social. And it's so easy to forget that 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 as a fundamental part of, of who we are and the whole world and anything that we're talking about so far. So that's, I love that comment from Leslie. Then I heard when, when Joan was talking about science and, and what made me think was this, well, what is science now? I mean, is it science's job to deliver certainty? We, we don't put that, we don't put that high bar on a whole lot of things, other things, do we? Um, so how come we've got it for science? And it seems to me that the science has come into a very, very precarious place in this whole COVID thing. Is science a hero? Or is it going to be the villain and our downfall, particularly health? Um, is it... Uh, just another part of another tribe like you were talking about Joan where it's just another voice amongst all the rest of the other voices um, it's got no more credibility than that or are we going to go back to being a handmaiden which is what we've been for a long time to put politics into the economy and to, and, and, and to greed really so I think this is a moment of actually really interrogating science and we have to be very pretty careful as dinner ladies and as scientists to make sure we we steer a course about what we want science to be in this and don't flip into any of those spaces that we don't want science to be that good thanks Linda so lately great thank you um, so uh, I have to keep pointing out to people that I'm an optimist uh, even though I keep coming up with dark side uh, illusions of the world because, you know, I deal with cyber. So, you know, cyber is all about the bad things that can go wrong with technology. And, uh, and so I spend a lot of my time thinking about the deep and dark places. But by and large, I'm an optimist. I do believe that we can make this better. And your point exactly, Helen, is that um, it is political. We have to start stepping up and actually pick up the burden and run with it because we've been for 30 years in Australia, we've had a pretty good run. And so uh, I, I worry that we become too complacent and too used to things. In the meantime, there's little tiptoes of people, special interests. There always are. People are people. That's what happens. 
that sort of say, actually, here we can take the opportunity to do what we want to do now. Hence, some of the sort of, you know, the things we're seeing going through Parliament about, you know, legis you know, Asia legislation and those sort of things. Maybe for good reasons. There are good people in the public service, but we need to think about it at the societal level, and this is a political question. I should also say I agree with Lyndall, and as much as, as I said before, I do worry about um, the certainty that's ascribed to certain things. You know, the world is highly contingent. Uh, and it's interesting just listening. I can't remember who said it before, but you know, I came away with the illusion about science versus technology. You know, often it's technology that picks up because it's the realisation of things in a political, social and economic context other than the science. And we do tend to confuse the two. And I think that can be quite dangerous. But by and large, I'm an optimist. I think there's, we have the opportunity. It's part of the edge, being at the edge of chaos. Thank Lovely. You. Well, listen, I, I think we should probably uh, wrap up now. Um, it, I, I think this has been a, a very a very special uh, podcast. I hope for our, our listeners, um, you agree with me. Um, speaking personally, I think uh, it's so important to share difficult times, happy times, you know, all sorts of times uh, with uh, friends and colleagues who you trust, admire and respect. And the discussions that we've had on this podcast, the Dinner Ladies Save the World podcast, I think have been all about uh, that celebration of friends, of collegiality, of respect, of trust, um, and of, of having the conversations in a way that is really not uh, about, you know, what what have we got to what have we got to tell the world because we know it all I and mean, I'm just reflecting on our discussions right at the start of the uh, the podcast um, it was well do we have anything to say and I think just listening to the the rap uh, in this podcast if I if I was a politician sitting at home in Australia. Uh, sitting in the United Nations, sitting in any country in the world, I would be listening very, very carefully to what each of you have just been saying uh, this evening because the, the insights as to how we might take what might be an incredibly difficult point in time and make the absolute best uh, out of it, um, I think yeah, is just, just incredible. And so important, the point of agency. Uh, we all have agency. We all have the ability collectively to influence what this trajectory going forward is going to look like. Uh, whether we use our um, structural power, our institutional power, our discursive power, I'm just writing paper on power, hence I'm showing my power. Um, but engaging uh, within this uh, dialogue going forward is just so vitally important. So I just want to thank uh, each of the, the dinner ladies. Uh, it's time to finish up uh, our dinner. You've been listening to Dinner Ladies uh, Save the World podcast. Until the next time, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you.